Wolf Tyvey, welcome to the metagame. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So um, you're the editor-in-chief of Palladium Magazine. That's right. Which is a publication that's focused on governance, futurism, through luxury political theory. And we'll get into what all those things are. But I thought a good Mm -hmm. place to start for the listeners would be how you got to this from initially being a mechanical engineer back in 2014. Yeah, Yeah, so I went to school for mechanical engineering. I don't know. It was something that fascinated me. I I wanted to learn about how to actually build stuff. I wanted to make machinery. I come from a family of engineers. Um, I ended up doing some green technology stuff fuel cell development. Um, but I've written about this. I, I, uh, I realized it wasn't really kind of where, where the interesting things were going to be happening. Uh, I realized a lot of the problems that we had as a civilization weren't actually technical problems. And mm. the, at least as far as what I could, what I was looking at, what I could see, what I could imagine solving. And, uh, I saw that there was a lot of philosophical kind of political issues and so I got really into that kind of thinking. This was while I was still working as an engineer as well. Um, started doing a lot of study in that area. I'd previously studied computer science on the side and taught myself that. So I've always just kind of had a had an ethos of, of self-study. But um, yeah, so I ended up looking into kind of philosophy, history, politics, those things. Um, and at some point I realized that that you know, I wanted to strike out on my own, uh, whether that meant, you know, starting a startup or doing, doing some other crazy thing with philosophy. I don't know. I, I didn't know what it was. I, I just knew that I needed to, I needed to change. Uh, so I just quit my job and I didn't really have any idea of what I was going to do. They, they asked me like, uh, you know, Wolf, why are you leaving? You know, are we not paying you enough? You know, are you dissatisfied or something? I was like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just, it's time. <laughs> I got to go. I, I got to go explore, do things on my own. Um, yeah, so I, I did that. I quit my job in 2014. Um, kind of uh, passed myself off as temporarily retired for a few years. Um, mm-hmm. Lived on savings, just kind of explored, read books, talked to friends, ended up building an intellectual network um, around a lot of the ideas that I wanted to explore. And at some point, I mean, there's there's sort of four years of of adventure there, but but at some point, I realized I needed to launch a publication to explore the big ideas that I think needed to be explored in the world and that weren't being weren't being explored otherwise. And and you know, we were developing a, a perspective on society, on philosophy, on all these things that simply was not represented elsewhere. And so. Um, you know, to, to do it at a next level of quality, attract more collaborators, meet people, kind of network around these ideas. I, I figured a publication is what I need. And uh, so I launched Palladium Magazine back in 2018, um, late 2018. And yeah, it's been since then sort of this process of working out what are the most important issues in the world? How do we think about them? What is the future of governance going to actually look like? What are the things that are real? What are the things that are fake? Um, and, and how do we, how do we kind of come up with a solution that's going to actually pull our civilization out of, out of its malaise and, and bring some seeds of new growth, some kind of 
revitalization. That's really what we're about, right? It's like, where did that come from? What do we do? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so we've been doing a lot of thinking about that. We call it governance futurism, this overall activity, you know, thinking about the future, specifically the future of governance, future of politics. Um, and we, another word that we've, we've thrown around actually is applied history. So, mm -hmm. you know, a history as a, as an applied discipline where you, you go and study history, you learn all these, all these sort of, uh, inspirations, theories, uh, past examples, and then you go and do something, you, you go and make history. Um, yeah. So, so these are sort of ideas we throw around with palladium, um, and we launched a print magazine a couple of years ago. Uh, there's, there's one of the more recent mm -hmm. versions of it. I don't know if anyone can see the video, but um, that was uh, Palladium 7, Garden Planet. We're just putting out Palladium 9. We're launching in Austin. Uh, we're doing our official premiere of, of Palladium 9, which is on political outcomes. Um, doing that later this month. And that's on basically the way live players... Um, people who who have kind of historical agency how they act in history how they engage with existing sovereignty how they engage with existing ideas how they change things and build new institutions um how they succeed how they fail so we do we did a bunch of case studies of of such people for palladium nine and uh it turned out really well um we weren't really focusing necessarily on the the most sovereign players, like the ones who are actually the king or the the leader, or the sovereign, the president. But we were very interested in these these advisors. What does it mean to advise power effectively as a life player? How do you how do you bring new ideas, bring new institutions, new directions to history when you're just collaborating with mm. some larger project of sovereignty? And and do you need to do that, or can you just do things? Uh, do things otherwise. One of our big findings in Palladium Nine is, of course, that that you do need to attach yourself to a particular sovereign project, and so there are various examples like uh, Count Kalergi, who tried to do some interesting things in Europe, but basically failed because there was no actual sovereign. Um, anyways, that's that's uh, that's what Palladium's been up to. That's and yeah, Palladium Nine's coming next. People should subscribe. <laughs> yeah, and, and these and get their uh... copy. These magazines, they're like these beautiful physical compilations yeah. of a bunch of different articles related to some theme, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Yeah. So each each quarter we put out a print edition of Palladium and it's mm -hmm. focused on a theme. You know, this one's political outcomes. We did Garden Planet re recently. We did Scientific Authority. We did Cultivating Elites a few, uh, like a year and a half ago. Um, I, want, I want to double click on that one. Yeah. Um, and, and so each of these topics is like some big, important area where we're doing work. We're thinking about this. We want to put out new thought in this area. So we're just kind of like staking these flags. These are the topics mm -hmm. Palladium's interested in. We put out an issue. We solicit a bunch of, a bunch of work on the topic. Um, yeah. And, and we get them illustrated with, with just the most beautiful kind of uh, aesthetically inspiring art that we can get together and, and present it in a very luxurious format. It's kind of this coffee table book. It's a, it's a luxury item. It's a, it's a token of, of sort of involvement in this process. Um, so yeah, we're very proud of what we do with Palladium. Yeah. You, you said something very interesting a moment ago when you were talking about why you quit your job. 
You said that you realized that there were some problems that, uh, that technology wouldn't solve and Mm -hmm. you actually needed philosophy or you actually, they're, they're fundamentally problems of, of intellectual rigor. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This this is interesting to me because it seems to go contrary to the typical Silicon Valley view or the Mark Andreessen worldview, which is right. basically technology has been the number one lever that has improved things for humanity. Uh, but you're saying it's it's ideas. And so I'd love to hear you expand on that. Sure, I can make that case. Um, yeah, so... I, I might even say that technology is the primary driver, but mm-hmm. you have to be careful. There's a few things that you have to take in mind there. One is that there are different types of technology. There's material technology, what we're very familiar with as technology. You know, can you build a better mousetrap? Does your machine produce more parts per hour, you know, with less energy input? Or, you know, can you can you mine more energy? Can you can you do more computations, right? Um, there's there's these very material things. And those are what we call material technology. There's also the technologies of organization, which largely mean technologies of organization of humans. Those we, what mm-hmm. we might call the social technologies, the te- like you know the logistical bureaucratic state, the uh, the sort of homogenization of language across a national state, the it's techniques of imperial administration of how you relate to subject peoples. The techniques of governance. Is it a democracy? Is it a republic? Is it a monarchy? Is it some kind of aristocratic thing? Is it an oligarchy? Um, these setups, those, that machinery is machinery. It is in many ways the most important machinery because it's the part that has agency. It's the part that decides when there's new technology, how does it get incorporated? How does it get incorporated? There's a lot of technologies throughout history. It's like some interesting thing developed never really got picked up, right? You know, so you get, you get occasional steam engines in history and it's like, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't lead to what we have uh, at the very least. And, and why is that? You know, they didn't have the social organization to take advantage of that. Um, and, and so there's, there's, yeah, there's a sense in which it's some of the most important technologies are the technologies of human organization. And what are those actually built out of? They're built out of philosophy. They're built out of uh, people's beliefs, people's patterns of interaction with each other, their institutions, right? They're, they're things that are built through this very social mode, very philosophical mode. Often they're built out of these fundamental pre-rational commitments we have to certain ways mm-hmm. of looking at the world, right? Like we look at the world in a certain way, it causes us to, to be able to coordinate around things. Like in Western society, now I'm, I'm critical of this, but in Western society, we we sort of have the idea of wealth, uh, financial wealth, money, right? This is something we all very much understand, but, uh, and, and that becomes one of the things that we coordinate around as a society. You know, we go in on projects together. We, we, uh, we coordinate to, to create wealth or, or, or gain wealth for ourselves. Maybe we are not, uh, and, and that's, that's, that's almost a pre-rational commitment. People have all these narratives about, about why is wealth important, but when you really like poke into those, those things may not actually hold up as much as they think they do. It's much more just there's a bunch of, of prestige and trappings and, and, and uh, returns that come with wealth that, that we are sort of culturally invested in. Mm-hmm. That 
you need not be totally invested in. There's other ways of doing things. Um, but that's just an example of what what is common in our society. Another one is individual expression. We like to think of ourselves as individuals. We like to express ourselves as individuals. We, you know, we like to have an, a strong individual identity. We like to have kind of an ego and so on. And like that mode of engagement that comes from like a fundamental worldview. It comes from our subtle culture that we've, we've been raised in, but it very much shapes the kind of society we have, the kind of organization that we can do. And so those ideas, those kinds of ideas are um, very important to the structure of society. And so if you're thinking about how could society work differently, what you're talking about is what are the different priorities people could have? What are the different worldviews people could have? What are the different sort of fundamental things people could be coordinating around? And so um, it's... So in that sense, it's like there's just an engineering discipline here. There's a bunch of machinery. It just happens that the stuff it's built out of is philosophy rather than uh, mm. rather than metal, right? And the other the the other thing though is like you know there's the the types of technology that really make a difference are the technology are sort of the military technologies, right? There's um, the gun, the the cannon, the stirrup, uh, the phalanx. Like you, you go back through history, right? Like what are these? What are these types of these military technologies? And, and they're not just technologies; they're technologies embedded in social processes. Um, but but these, uh, yeah, military technologies, military techniques. Those are the things that really drive uh, a lot of the structure of things. And so it's like, yeah, it's a it's a technological thing, but it's a, it's a um, it's it's not necessarily you know it's not a new app. It's not it's not a a faster piece of machinery like a steam engine or something once we've already got steam engines, right? Like mm. when we first came up with steam engines, that affected the military aspect because it affected, you know, what kinds of societies can win at war. If you have an industrialized military against against a pre-industrial military, like that is a decisive encounter. Um, but part of my analysis with technology was just that within this kind of existing paradigm of technology, of what we think of as technology, of what engineering looks like for mechanical or software, we know how to do those things. They're very, the, the technique is very well established and there really isn't that much revolutionary stuff coming out of that. Now, mm. I know VCs obviously have to say that everything's revolutionary because they're trying to pump their bags, but but in fact, very little of this is actually revolutionary. Very little of the technology or so-called technology that, that we have going on right now is of that truly interesting type. And if you want to talk about what is holding back the truly interesting types of technology, you know, why aren't we developing new weapon systems or, you know, fundamentally different forms of, of industrial organization or, or, or things that things that would actually overturn uh, our, our order, the established order, or would enable new things to come into existence. Those technologies are often, you look closely, it's, it's held back by social organization. Mm -hmm. There's, there's some coordination needed to develop that, uh, that you can't, um, you, you're not going to, to do that within sort of established patterns of action. You have to think about, how do we change the regime uh, to be able to enable that? And 
so uh, you know, I, I think one way that that's very much <laughs> underrated by VCs that, that this is concrete is is uh, technology development is not profitable in a capitalist economy, and this this is something that needs to be understood. What goes on in the private markets is almost never technology development. It's technology, it's product development, technology mm -hmm. application, technology perfection, technology production in, the, in an industrial sense, industrialization. But where does this stuff actually come from? Because what is technology? Technology is the ways of doing things. The ways of doing things are transferable. They're information goods. They're public goods. Everyone gets them very quickly. Once the idea is out there, everyone gets them. And so there's no competitive advantage in it, but it's very expensive to produce those ideas. You need to do a lot of basic research. You need guys in labs fiddling around, doing things that no one else is doing. And, and that's what creates the new technology. And so, you know, you look at the iPhone, right? I mean, this is a common story. Everyone's heard this, but you look at the iPhone, it's like all the key technologies there, you know, your touch screen, your lithium batteries, mm -hmm. your miniaturized computing, et cetera, et cetera. All of this uh, comes out of government labs ultimately. And so if you're talking about even new technology, you're talking about, and the reason it comes out of government labs is that the government is big enough, especially in a sort of cold war type conflict, the government is big enough to have an interest in investing in technology and no particular private company actually does have that interest. It doesn't make sense. Like people always try to do technology research in a company context. It always ends up, no, we got to, we got to reduce our ambitions. We got to just focus on product. What can we productize? Right. There's very little new technology coming out of the market. And, and so the, the upshot is if technology is not happening, it's because of something going on in the government priorities. In mm -hmm. other words, governance, philosophy, politics, institutions, right? So it's even if you're trying to build technology, even if you think technology is the most important thing, a lot of the key bottlenecks are actually these social, organizational, political bottlenecks. And so, you know, I'm sitting there as an engineer. I'm thinking, well, damn, my, my skills as an engineer are actually kind of commodified. There are people out there. They know how to do this. The frameworks of action that I'm working within are established limited, commodified. So there isn't this sort of historical counterfactual influence in, at least this, this was my reasoning at the time. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong or whatever, but, but my reasoning at the time was, okay, I don't see anything truly interesting, truly glorious coming mm -hmm. out of pursuing, pursuing the, the kind of work I was doing or, or the kind of work I could imagine easily doing with, with, um, mechanical engineering in particular. Um, so I got out and now, and, and I went to these things that seemed much less solved, not commodified at all. Philosophy, right? Uh, fundamental thinking about politics in the long term. Those are the things that are very open-ended, very up in the air. Yeah. So just to highlight a couple of things you said, because I, I love how you, you tied that all back together with the, the initial point about these pre-rational commitments that we have where Mm -hmm. in in the west we're committed to capital and if there isn't a financial incentive to do something it's very unlikely to be done and then you're mm -hmm. making the case that even the technology that we see um is based on uh 
exceptions to that. So the government labs and for mm-hmm. people who are kind of skeptical on this point, there's a couple one liners that I really like that kind of support your position, which is, I think one was from Peter Thiel where he said, we were promised jetpacks, but all we got were 140 characters. Yeah, and so, like that. so yeah, this idea that, you know, in 2023, didn't you expect to have jetpacks or something a little more impressive than just social media companies? And then, um, I think Eric Weinstein said something like, if you take a scene from today, like a image of a room and you just remove the screens and then maybe the style, what will tell you that you're not in the seventies? Right. Right. So there, there really hasn't been that much in terms of profound technological advancement in the last 50 years. And it's worth asking why that is. You go back to mm-hmm. the 70s, you go back to the 60s. What was going on that caused uh, that change? And that change is very real. It's very material. You look at things like the usage of energy per capita mm-hmm. over time. It's exponential until 1973, and then it flatlines, at least in the United States. Uh, you look at things like the development of hydroelectric power, exponential, 1973, flatlines. Um you know, gasoline, like, like use of all sort of energy availability, uh, is, is very clear thing. Like if you're talking about jetpacks, for example, what, what, what is a jetpack or a flying car, right? Like how do you make a flying car work? Well, you burn a lot of energy. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's actually trivial. If you have a lot of energy, you can just fly around. It's, it's easy. Uh, if you don't have a lot of energy, you can't fly around. It, it's that simple. And, uh, and so this fact that that energy use flatlined in the 70s, that's a very significant fact, right? And it's not just energy use, it's, you know, um, workers' wages, it's, it's uh, a lot of kind of social variables, economic variables. There's something very big happened in the early 70s. What was that, right? And, and well, there was a very large change in ethos. There was almost a regime change in the United States mm-hmm. with Watergate, with the 60s sort of social revolution, uh, with sort of the coming of the new left, neoliberalism, like there was this very big shift away from the post cold or sorry, the, the, the post World War II cold war sort of aerospace development state mm-hmm. that had been doing stuff like Apollo and doing stuff like the, the, uh, you know, high tech aircraft and, and the, the infrastructure development, building up the energy, like all of that. There was a, there was a whole social machinery within the government of doing that stuff and, and not just in the government, a broader economy. And there was a regime change those people retired. They were not replaced. The people they were replaced by were, were worried about like the limits to growth and environmentalism. And like, we don't want our communities torn down to make highways and stuff. Like mm. there was a very different ethos that came in politically and, and, you know, there was a lot of upheaval all over the world, but broadly along these lines. And, and so there was a political, cultural, social change that happened there that led to the stagnation of energy development or, or directly intentionally caused the stagnation of energy development. And what, what does the stagnation of energy development cause? It means no flying cars, mm-hmm. like very directly, right? If, you, if there was 10 times as much energy, we would be flying around in flying cars. If there is not 10 times as much energy, you don't do that. Because that's like flight is, is energy intensive. It's really easy if you have a lot of energy and it's really hard if you don't. Right. So, um, 
I think you, you alluded to this a couple times already, but I, and I've heard you mention this before, this project of governance futurism, at least in part is about de- having a coordinated elite. Can yes. you explain a little bit about what that means? Sure. So there's a few aspects of that. I mean, one is just like, let's look at states and, and what makes them work. Um, in all societies, you, you have some subset of people who have all the power. Um, uh, you know, Vilfredo Pareto, famous kind of distribution he notices, there's always a subset of people that have all the power, all the way, all the wealth, all the income. But, um, you know, this, this goes especially for, uh, political power where it's adversarial and organized. And the more you combine it into like a machine, the stronger it gets. So, um, in all societies, there's sort of such a thing as an elite or something like an elite. There's there's people mm-hmm. who have the power. There's the institutions that have the power. And then the question then just becomes how well do they use that power? What do they use that power for? Are they using it to inefficiently to squash petty rivals and extract petty gains for themselves? Or are they using it efficiently to develop the realm that they have control of, develop their subjects and use that against, let's say, external rivals or external problems. And if you have the latter, then broadly, that's what we call development and progress. Uh, and if you have the former, that's what we call stagnant oligarchy. Um, and so what is that key variable, right? It's, it's how well are they coordinating? How efficiently are they coordinating to achieve bigger aims? Uh, or are they, are they, are they caught up with petty personal aims, petty political squabbles, uh, or they caught up with big dreams, big visions, big plans. And the the difference there is just their level of coordination. How well are they able Mm. to actually do the thing? Um, And so that's the first sense in which, you know, we need a coordinated elite. (laughs) If we want a society that's working, you need a coordinated elite. That's that's really just uh, very straightforward. And, um, you know, I know people have a lot of libertarian ideas like, oh, actually, you don't want to be governed. You don't want a coordinated elite and so on. I think it's sort of under the under the idea that, you know, we're all independent individuals and most of our interaction with the government is them extracting from us. Um, and and, you know, so we don't want them to be effective at extracting from us. Um, and just to address that briefly, I think people overestimate how independent they are underestimate their dependence on public goods. They overestimate how hard it is uh, to oppress people and uh, extract from them. And they underestimate how hard it is to provision public goods. And if you, if you, if you say, if you recognize that oppressing people and extracting from them is the last thing to go and not the first thing when you degrade government competence, and you notice that public goods are the first thing to go, right. then what you notice is, and, and you know, also you accept that there's basically always going to be someone powerful because power exists, it, it concentrates itself. Um, then you, you have to recognize that actually your interest is in public goods. You want the public goods to be at a high level. Yes, you're going to live under a extractive regime. You are going to pay taxes, right? This, this is, 
you know, what are the two things that Benjamin Franklin says are like absolutely assured, right? Of death and taxes. Um, <laughs> this is this is basically a metaphysical principle. You must accept mm. death and taxes. You are going to be taxed. And now the question is, are those taxes going to an effective regime that's doing interesting things, or is it an ineffective regime that is only oppressing you and extracting from you? Mm. And um, you know, and maybe sometimes you're the tax man or something, but uh, in which case you need to be well coordinated as an elite with your friends. Um, but, but basically it's in everyone's interest. You actually want there to be a highly functional state. It's just hard to do because the highly functional state means you get the provision of public goods. Uh, you actually get something for your tax money. Um, and it's a dysfunctional state that you want to avoid anyway. So that's my case for, uh, case against, against sort of certain forms of libertarianism and for thinking about this question, how do you build a functional elite? And now in the governance futurism project in particular, we're looking at the United States and sort of broadly the Western world, which is largely dominated by the United States right now. Um, and what we see is a dysfunctional oligarchy. Mm-hmm. You have people who they're powerful somewhat, not that powerful as individuals, but powerful enough that they're able to win their petty political squabbles. They're able to extract from the system. They're able to maintain their class interest. Um, of of the sort of the people who dominate our institutions, who dominate our our you know financial markets, media, intellectual sort of universities, the the, the state, the the whole state machinery, like the, that whole kind of apparatus of power. There is a class of people who participate in that. Those people are able to defend their own interests because that's again the last thing to go. But they're not that well coordinated. I mean, there's some sense in which like you don't even want to call them an elite because they're not mm. actually at that level. It's it's kind of pathetic sometimes when you look closely. It's it's just everyone milling about. It's like about a herd of cats and they don't know what to do. And and um, you know sometimes it's capable. Examples. Of, um, I'm not gonna go into very particular things, but if you look closely, uh, like you hear these you hear these anecdotes of like how do we regulate social media or like how do we. Hmm. How do we deal with this, some strategic issue? And it's like the 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 people are all just talking about these like spurious justice issues or like waiting for someone else to make a decision or there's no clear like strategy or anyone in charge. It's just kind of all these think tanks and 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 people sort of at various parts of the system deferring to each other and like no one really sticking their neck out because it's it's not really to anyone's advantage to be like in unilaterally trying to govern in, in some like strategic way. And the, the other thing is, of course, that very, very few people have the philosophical sort of educational um, prerequisites for doing that effectively. Mm-hmm. That, that that part of education is kind of has been missing. And so what this suggests is this obvious thing that needs to be done, which is, okay, someone needs to provide that educational resource so that people can actually imagine what ambitious government would look like and well-coordinated government. Like, can we imagine that? And can we get, can we solve that coordination problem of getting multiple people inspired by that idea and, and to work together and trust each other and have, have that asabia, that, that, that group, group trust uh, to be able to do that. And, and our basic thesis with palladium is like, okay, well, we're going to put some of our effort into that problem. We're going to put out Mm. what we think is the best navigation grade 
applied history information, the thing that makes governance features impossible, right? We're, we're going to find the best information. We're going to put it out there. We're going to get people inspired um, about the possibility of good governance. And you know, in doing so, we're going to attempt to get people talking to each other about this, get them coordinated around, can we actually become that? And then at some point, someone you want someone to actually go and start building institutions. And the way you do this is you just go and build institutions. You, um, this is, I think, an underrated fact about, I mean, I don't know if it's a fact. This is, this is my sort of fundamental worldview in these, in these things, but it's a, I'll call it a fact, but a, a fact about power and, and, and politics is that power falls into the hands of whoever is worthy of that power, whoever has the capability mm -hmm. to do something useful with it. Because there's actually a lot of power lying around, and people are sort of wondering where to put it. <laughs> where would be, you know, what's what's uh, who, who do we who do we coordinate around? Who what who who do we have to solve this issue? You know, like everyone recognizes an issue. There's no one who can solve it. They're, they're sitting around, kind of being a herd of cats. They all know that there's something wrong. That the thing is dysfunctional. If someone comes along and says, "Hey, look, we have an institution that's competent enough to solve this problem," the the thing coalesces. It mm -hmm. it, it uh, um, this is part of the, the the point I made in in that article I wrote. Quit your job. I I think some of it people got, some of it I'm not sure. One of the points I made in that was was this idea of the just world that mm. that if you actually have the virtue, if you can actually do the thing, the universe will provide. And and I think this is especially true in human society where people want the problem solved, <laughs> they will conspire to to give you the power if you are capable of wielding it. So what does this all imply? It implies people should be getting together, building actual institutions, build the institutions of good government, just directly, just, just do it, get coordinated with your friends, get inspired, educate yourself, build the institutions of good government. What does that do? It creates it, that, if, if you get that, that ball rolling, that momentum going, it creates uh, a renaissance of governance and, that's how we get, we get, uh, or at least that's one path. How we get uh, dynamic, developmentalist, um, ambitious government back in our civilization. And mm -hmm. there's, of course, a lot of details. I'm, I'm skimming over many of the politics. Obviously, there's like factions and so on involved. There's different interests. There's going to be fighting, right? But it's like the fundamental activity is: can you build the functionality of a coordinated elite? And and that. This is this is like the question in in governance, and and mm. so that's the one we're trying to focus on with Palladium. Yeah, I, I love um, how simply you broke that all down, and I find it very persuasive. And I guess um, you're saying that our the current elite uh, in the U.S. or in the West is mm -hmm. not coordinated. What would yeah, you say to people who uh, I know, especially during COVID, there was a lot of concerns around this, but people who feel like um, there's this rise of technocracy and the elite is getting better and better at oppressing mm -hmm. uh, the citizens of the state. And it's almost like the narrative that I hear when I talk to people about this is that they're very small and weak and there's this like really powerful elite mm -hmm. that is capable of, of controlling them. But you're giving a slightly different pic picture, which is that they're, completely uncoordinated and they're like dealing with their own petty issues. So what yeah. would you say well, to it's, that it's, concern? 
unfortunately, the petty issues are often like the existence of a voter base, that, you know, and and so they 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 do resort to oppressive methods, and and like generally, you know, the elite wants everyone inside the tent pissing out rather than you know pissing around inside the tent, and so what. While they are uncoordinated, the things that they are coordinated around are like the class interest of of that elite class that occupies those positions within the institutional power structure. They are coordinated largely around the maintenance and exercising of that power. And so you get um, you get the situation again where the government remains very much or not the government, the the extended sort of uh, ecosystem of power remains very much capable of getting to a consensus and wielding that consensus against you and, mm. you know, extracting quite a bit of pain from you, um, you know, in getting you to follow that. And so that's what we see with things like the, the COVID and so on. But then it's like, that's okay. That's what it's capable of. <laughs> that is dangerous, right? And it, it, it's painful to live under that. It sucks. But you look closely at it. What are they using that power for? It's like incoherent. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, oh yeah, we're building, you know, we're building this like COVID sort of medical security state so that we can just like dismantle it a little time later. And like, what did they, you know, like we're going to oppress people and they're not even getting like taxes out of it. It's, it's, there's, there's, it's the end that the thing that it is ending up doing is not some well-coordinated strategic plan to take over the world. It's just people who already have taken over the world kind of bumbling around, getting into a consensus with no particular strategic coherence. Hmm. And, you know, like where did the COVID thing come from in the first place? Well, it was like an accident, right? It's a lab accident funded by that whole machine. Right. And, and it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, you know, we need right. this big, this big, you know, lab accident, this worldwide pand- pandemic and ruin the economy so that, you know, we're going to somehow have more power over the people. No, they have plenty of power over the people. They, they, they can do whatever they want. Right. This is always the thing with government. You have to realize governments are extremely powerful. They can do what they want. Uh, but if they, if it's incoherent, then it's going to hurt, right? Mm. If it's not incoherent, if they have some, you know, glorious strategy that they're trying to pursue, um, you know, you you as as a peasant or whatever may not feel aligned with that strategy, but it's going to look a lot different than COVID. Uh, it, it's going to look like, oh, damn, I really hate paying those taxes to support the Apollo program or or like these capitalists disrupting all of us and like making us work in the factories and this economy's getting out of control. Like, you know, back in the 19th century, that's sort of what it looked like, right? It was this, it was this, it was this very expansionary, uh, colonialist, imperialist, uh, capitalist kind of machine rapidly expanding. And there were things that were crazy about that, but, and, and there were things that were uncoordinated about it, but it was a lot more kind of coherent than, than I think what we have now, which is mm-hmm. just the power remains, the, cons- the ability to get into a consensus remains, but the, and the ability to defend the power and, and sort of expand the power and so on, or like continue producing the power, that all remains, but the, the vital growth potential, the ability to do anything actually interesting with that is just kind of missing. 
So it's like, yeah, it's it's oppressive. It sucks. The system extracts from you. It sucks, especially when they're not even coherent enough to like take care of you because you're an asset or something. It, um, there are other possible perspectives here. I'm giving kind of like the, the um, let's say the governance take. There's also the freedom take, which is a little different. It's much more from the perspective of like, how do you liberate yourself from the from those systems of abstraction of of extraction, like you don't actually necessarily want to be uh, caught up in that. But I would say it's much better if you're going to be caught up in it to be caught up in one that's actually working. Mm-hmm. And so, coming back to the work you're doing at Palladium, you mentioned social technology and these mm-hmm. philosophical machines of of mm-hmm. uh, coordination, basically, mm-hmm. and um, to me, what's, what's interesting about that is it's not, it's still mechanistic or the way you described it, it sounded mechanistic to me. Um, mm-hmm. and the first thing that comes to my mind is actually something that's much more artistic and mm-hmm. cultural and maybe even religious. And I think that's kind of also been floating in the background of this conversation because you mentioned, um, people who are inspired by, mm-hmm. by like an actual vision and, that requires having conviction. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you, you think about, or even if you delineate these things, like there's the social technology that Mm -hmm. may or may not be mechanistic. Maybe I just understood it that way. But then there's this other thing, which is like, I don't know, the ethos, the religio, the Mm -hmm. the deep values that ultimately are in service of coordination. Because if I think about human beings coordinating, I think about religion, right? I think about Mm -hmm. people who Mm -hmm. are committed to something transcendent. Yeah, and that's that's what I was getting at with these pre-rational commitments that we have as yeah. a culture that we coordinate around, right? It's those are fundamentally religious things. They're, you know, maybe maybe uh, five hundred years ago, um, you you hear a lot. You read the accounts from the time. You hear a lot more about about sort of people arguing about kind of how do we best serve, you know, our heavenly Lord and and uh, you know our 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 Lady and so on. Like meaning, of course, Jesus and Mary. Um, and, and like, they're thinking they're, they're very much like caught up in that way of thinking. That's how they're thinking there. And, and that's what they're coordinating around. And so, yeah, there's this huge religious component to the whole thing with respect to the mechanistic question. This is interesting actually. And, and how these things are combined or, or delineated in any form of life, there are the parts that are relatively fixed. And those are kind of mechanistic. You know, you look at your own body, you have the body plan, you have the cells, you have the organs, you have what it means to be a human. Those things are fixed. They're not, they're not part of your ongoing choices. You're part of your ongoing sort of like reconsideration. It's just, this is a leap of faith that you're stuck making. You're saying, I believe in, or not even I believe in, but I am betting on this platform, this, mm-hmm. this way of organizing myself. And uh, just by that inherent kind of mode of existence as being that kind of being. And, I th- and then on the other hand, there's the parts of you that are much more open-ended. There's the things that are taking that and saying, okay, where are we going to drive it? What, what, are, what kind of creative work are we going to do? What kind of, um, you know, what what sort of 
instrumental behavior is it going to have? What sort of uh, creative behavior, what sort of artistic or, you know, what what transcendent thoughts is is it going to have? A lot of that can be a lot more open-ended. Now, you actually get a similar thing going on in philosophy, though. Your worldview is not rationally chosen from a bunch of, a bunch of like, like, from no no premises, it's not like mm-hmm. cooked up by pure reason and choice, right? It's it's it is itself a leap of faith. There's a bunch of pre rational commitment that you have received that you don't even you're not even necessarily aware of that. It, it's sort of prior to awareness, and it's prior to thought. It, um, all of your thoughts happen within that framework, and it's something you've received, and that's similar to the body plan, right? It's this fixed kind of thing it has it has almost a mess mechanistic sort of aspect to it but then you know it's this transcendent religious kind of philosophical thing but it's also a machine right it's it's like a or a bet or a uh you know a bunch of constraints on your way of thinking and so you can think about it as you know the body plan of a living thing or you can think of it as the soul or you can think of it as as this this transcendent thing but it's all actually kind of the same thing. And the, 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 the real division is there's the fixed parts and the sort of open-ended parts. And, um, and so when you look at these social mechanisms, something similar, right? You, uh, a society has baked in certain ways of doing things, certain mm-hmm. modes of coordination, certain, um, certain forms of uh, sort of elite relation and, and the things that they're fundamentally committed to as a regime or as an order. Uh, you know, the feudal system was fundamentally committed to having like a warrior aristocracy that owned land, right? And and when the way that war went was such that a warrior aristocracy that owned land and could muster soldiers was no longer the decisive thing, then it's not like they could easily just choose to do something else. It's like they were those 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 regimes simply were that pattern, right? And that, that was not a matter of open choice. It's this mechanistic thing. They had taken that leap of faith. Um, and, but then, of course, you get these times in history where individuals or, or groups of people, they act much more open-ended ways and they define the new, some new pattern, some new regime, new ideas, new fundamental commitments. Um, and so I think, think this answers your question is to like the relationship between these things. You basically have open-ended parts and fixed parts in all of these parts, like in, in the philosophical, in the life plan, in the, in the society, sort of how people relate to each other. And, um, you kind of can't get a, you're not going to reason yourself out of the, the fixed parts. There are these, it's, it's this mechanistic structure and you can re-engineer it, but to re-engineer it is this like transcendent act it's this act from outside the system it's it's a it's a regime change whether that's in your own head or or hmm. or in in your surrounding society so I, I get the mechanistic parts i get the fact that even some system for human coordination has a bunch of constraints that dictate what people do mm-hmm um, and also a philosophy, basically, uh, to the extent that you've bought into some philosophy or an ideology, you are basically creating a, an avatar with its own set of constraints. But what's an example of 
this more open-ended stuff. That part seemed less clear to me. Um, so you're speaking like within, uh, within a certain civilized order within a certain regime. Yeah. Or, or any other example. That comes yeah. To so mind. let's, let's take, um, for example, like our kind of current industrial capitalist, uh, order, the parts that are fixed are things like, you know, the idea of finance, the idea of, of, uh, of, of ownership and, and, uh, these legal relations and so on. The things that are much more open-ended are like, which companies are we going to start? What technologies are we building? You know, what products that we have and, mm -hmm. and what's, what's going to sort of, what are we going to do in response to our economic circumstances? Um, in terms of like, what kind of products do we buy? What do we invest in? There's it's, it's open-ended and it's, it's not determined by the fundamental structure. It's determined by the choices we make in response to the situation we find ourselves in. They're free variables, right? They're, they're, and, and we set those free variables in accordance with our priorities, but, but it's sort of this open-ended question, like what, which way do we go? So in, in some ways, those are like the less interesting questions, right? Because they're, they're the ones, they're not the fundamental questions. The fundamental questions are set. Um, but when we're talking about, I think a, a historical situation like now, you want to, you almost want to go to the places where the fundamental questions are not settled and, mm. and you want to be making those open-ended. But what that means is it's actually very kind of, it's philosophically difficult even to like understand the meaning of that because you know, for example, let's say you know you're in a situation where your your sort of fundamental worldview is failing or your religion is failing. How do you, how do you, you, you can't reason your way out of that, right? Because the thing doesn't come from reason. You have to do something else. And, and so it's very difficult to get into that mode where that truly becomes one of the open-ended things. And then it's really this, I mean, to put it in religious terms, you have to sort of open yourself up to revelation, right? You have to put yourself mm -hmm. in a situation where you are going to receive new ideas and new, new leaps of faith that, that you're going to pursue that, um, they don't come from your own logic. Maybe you set yourself up. So the only ones you're going to receive, the only ones you're going to accept are the ones that work, but it's not, it's, you can't constrain it that much. And it's, you know, you go out in the desert and you talk to God, you don't know what you're going to hear, right? You can, you can, you, you might get anything and, and like, maybe it's wrong. And, mm -hmm. and, and these, these times in history, there's sort of like a little crucible, right? Where it's like the, the, the new stuff, there's, there's some space opened up for new stuff. Most of it's going to be wrong. Most of it's just going to fail. And then something there is going to work, right? There's going to be this process of revelation where something's going to work. And uh, how to engage in that activity is, it's not straightforward. Let's just put it that way. It's not straightforward. It's not entirely rational. It's, it just takes it's, psychedelics. No, it's not psychedelics. <laughs> the problem with psychedelics is they, they uh, reduce your ability to understand what is actually profound. That's, that's I mean, in particular, I, I, this... This is my opinion. This is what I see looking at the people who do a lot of, a lot of acid or something. It's like, you know, I had this experience, man, it was so profound. It's like, okay, that's, 
that's that's your subjective evaluation of that. The the nature of the drug is to is to degrade your subjective evaluation of what's profound. Actually, you want to go in the other direction, right? You know, the the most the most profound thinkers in history are, are guys like Mohammed, right? All mind altering substances are haram. Mm. It's you know he goes out into the desert and with an extremely rigorous mind, with extremely rigorous way of thinking. It, there's there's no there's it's it's not uh, it's not a sloppy. It's not just opening himself up to, in in that particular way. But nonetheless, he's out there. He's wrestling with demons and he's receiving something. And but it's it's the fact that he has a rigorous mind that allows that to be some to, to receive something true. And so it, it's like you need to set up your rigor. You need to set up the rigor of the process going on in your mind or of the process happening in in some corner of society where where the only thing that's going to survive there is the new regime and you're not going to let any pseudo profound bullshit through you're not going to mm-hmm. let any falsehood through the current thing can't make it through and you're in this position of like total uncertainty but and, and you can't reason your way through it all you can do is create an environment where you know the strongest thing will survive the new the new regime will survive and that means uh, you have to be doing rigorous thought, but it has to be of a very different type than like the usual logical kind of uh, deductive mode. Yeah, I don't know if this is making of... sense. I, this this is kind of how I think about the, this process of like historically uh, th- these historical moments of revelation. Yeah, I, I've always seen uh, a, a parallel with like true philosophy and. Mm-hmm. and uh, a genuine psychedelic experience so obviously there are cases where you just mess up your profundity sensing apparatus and then everything is seen as profound but psychedelics mm-hmm. i think also have the potential to open you up to things that previously you were constrained to and and true philosophy is like that and in that sense it's actually terrifying it's not it's not a consoling exercise no it's something that if you follow it to its end will be deeply unnerving and destructive. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded of, of Nietzsche. I think he had a quote. He said something like, um, like all things that wobble must be pushed over or something. It's mm-hmm. like this idea. Yeah, another that, one. Yeah. Another, another one from Nietzsche actually on this subject. Uh, when you, when you started talking, talking about this, I immediately thought of Nietzsche cause he's got this great quote. That's, um, even, even seeking truth is an act of cruelty. Mm. It's, uh, like, can you deal with this morally and intellectually? Even even overcoming falsehood in your own mind is going to be so, so painful that and it, you have to delight in causing that pain. It has it's an act of cruelty. You have to be like seeking. You, you have to be aggr- there's an aggression and a cruelty to even just to, to coming up to these new ideas that you're you're delighting in your ability to just destroy. The, the falsehoods before you and like delighting in the pain that that causes and, and you bringing this new thing into existence. And that's a very challenging thing that he puts on us, right? It's like, okay, well, you, you say you want truth. What if, what if truth is actually an act of cruelty? Can you handle mm-hmm. that? You know, it, I found that very interesting. Yeah. So this, uh, this whole worldview, the one that requires 
intense rigor and also is quite ambitious, right? Like with what you're doing with Palladium, mm -hmm. you're basically, imagine you have a pretty long-term vision with it. Yeah. I, I think for somebody to do that, they must have some pretty deep convictions. Otherwise they're just not going to have the energy or they're not going to stay in the game or they're just not going to be excited. Yeah. So to the extent that you're comfortable discussing this, I'm curious, like what, what are you very convicted about? Yeah, that's an interesting question. The thing is you, you almost never have like rational access to this stuff. It's, mm. it's like, I can sort of give you my, my, uh, subjective experience of it. it. It's, it's sort of like that. I just don't care about a lot of the usual trappings of short-term success and that stuff has never really appealed to me. And so I, I, I'm often like very critical of it actually. Like when I see my mm -hmm. friends kind of getting caught in it and, and you, know, you can read this in my writing, right? Like just the ways that I'm shitting on the, the, the things that people care about because they're just totally pointless. Um, and then at the same time, I've always been very inspired by certain kinds of, you know, grand, uh, grand sort of highly disruptive crazy ideas that it's like this is sort of the fundamental thing that, get, that gets me going is like let's do something crazy you know like for real not just not just uh uh you know not contained in some way and and so it's like what, what's the thing that's sort of most consistent across time with me it's it's like this this pre-rational faith that something crazy is needed that we need to mm we need to just blow it all up and, and like rethink it and, and, or we need to do something that just to works totally different from what exists. Let's, let's, you know, let's not do the conventional thing. And, uh, uh, you know, these are, that's not necessarily correct or incorrect. It's just like, you know, people are set up in, in the way they're set up. This is the way, this is the, the sort of the path that I've been given to walk, right. It's like, all right, Wolf, go out there and, don't care about uh, a lot of the usual stuff. Just, just kind of do something crazy and get inspired by the crazy stuff. And, and that's, so that's like maybe the most, the, the ground level for me it's, and, and then, you know, what I find is, is that at this, at this particular time in history, like the idea of good government is so crazy and, and interesting that, mm -hmm. that like, it's kind of captivated me. It's like, it's like, what if we had a, what if we had a government that was ambitious and, 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 and sort of like threw itself into the future in, uh, in some, some grand gesture, like what, what, or, or, you know, could, could really go all out, like pushing out the limits of, of like how good can civilization get? It's sort of almost this art project of, uh, or like this, this curiosity, right? It's like, how far can we go? how how cool or how, how great can this get you know can can we just have everything working super well can we have a mm -hmm. machine that's totally polished right what does it take or what's what's the what are the possibilities um and so yeah there's kind of like curiosity specifically around government and there's just things like aspects of the injustice of the current thing that are just so egregious or like so intolerable you know in in won't get into too much of that, but it, it's just like, there's a lot where, where you look at it. It's not, it's, it, it's just like, I'm not even mad. It's just like, 
that's gross. <laughs> Why would mm-hmm. you do that? Uh, kind of uh, like a lot of just self-owns, civilizational self-owns. It's yeah. like, that's what the hell? <laughs> we can do better than this, you know? Uh, and and um, yeah, so so those are, I mean, I don't know if this is answering your question. Those are like kind of how I think about the thing, the fundamental things that are driving me. I think it's like maybe notably absent here is like, some kind of principled system of thought or something. I'm I'm just talking about instincts. I'm just talking about mm. aesthetic will. And yeah. um I think that's the right the right thing. I, I I think people get caught in these verbalizations that, you know, maybe maybe part of it seems like it might be the right thing, but actually you it's kind of you're caught you're caught in something that's fake. And and the real thing is always just you know, you have a unique will, you have a new, unique aesthetic vision. It's not, it's not some kind of like sort of a priori principled justifiable thing that from, from pure reason or something. It's, it's like you're given a revelation. Your job is to, to see where it goes. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's of this, like, it it's not a, it's not a bunch of claims about what's true necessarily. It's a, it's a, a will you're, you're tasked with a will. And, um, so I, you know, I, 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 one of the things that I kind of, I've done over many years is just realized that, that like the, the attempted systematizations of like moral systems and stuff, it's, it doesn't, it's not really the right approach. The right approach mm-hmm. is to just like do what seems great and awesome and like do it at a high level of wisdom. And and the wisdom is things, you know, one by experience, one one by understanding. It's it's not it's not like these Kantian principles or something. It's it's like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, in practice we need a government that works. In practice, we need elites that are coordinated, you know, or like, you know, we look at things and we say, I like things when they're designed that way. That seem that appeals to me, right? But it's like you ha- you ultimately have to be kind of self-conscious about this active will that's involved and and or self-aware rather yeah it, it, it's um and then there's this there's this it's really one of the fundamental problems in the human condition it's like what do you do when you become self-aware about like the, in some ways arbitrary content of of your own will and mm-hmm. you have to ask where does that come from or you know, what's, what is actually authoritative? And there's a few different answers. Answer number one is, is, um, you reach for some kind of principled system, something that convinces you that you found a rational justification for what you're doing that, that, um, enables you to act without confronting that, vertigo of the will Hmm. and that's that's a lot of what goes on in philosophy people come up with these moral systems and it's like you know i can prove from sort of these 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 particular premises and this first principles that that this is the right moral system we have to act in this way you know people have rights people you know we need to do the greatest good for the greatest number you know it's like such and such you know the categorical imperative like you know all this stuff that comes out of philosophy that's like someone's trying to prove 
these propositional claims that allow you to not confront the vertigo of like, I'm just acting for the lulls at the end of the mm. day. Like I'm just, I'm just doing just it. it. Just, I'm just, it's, it's like at the end of the day, like the fundamental will of life is just kind of like for fun. It, and I was like, what's fun to you? It's kind of the, the it's this pretty rational thing. But so that's the first, the first response that people have is the, the response of like a principled system. The second response people might have is the response of like, well, I like it. Therefore it's good. It's, it's just this kind of hedonism. It's, it's mm. just my will is the only thing I can stand on. And, and, but this is also actually another way of, of kind of rejecting the vertigo. You're, you're just embracing the, the self and the immediate mm. instinct of the self. And you're not engaging with the larger question of what is its purpose in the world? Where does it come from? Why is it important? You're, you're just saying, oh, well, it's self-justifying. It's like, well, no, it's not actually. And, and so this answer, this is the Satanist answer. Um, this is what Lucifer does, right? He says, I reject the creator. I reject higher purpose. There's just the self, just the affirmation of the self. And this is kind of the, the instinct that a lot of modern, like hedonistic kind of thinking uh, goes on. It's, it's just the affirmation of the self. The third answer, which I think is the correct answer, is you come to some understanding of the process that created you, the process that created your will, the way it is, the things you want, the way they are, the, the, the way that is. And you say, what in that is authoritative? Why is that authoritative? Hmm. How do I understand the intention behind my creation? And, you know, if you, if you take sort of a materialist evolution kind of view, what you're looking at is, okay, well, uh, my, I am, I am uh, an experiment, but uh, it's sort of on, on a long line of refined, uh, you know, refined experiments. It's all your ancestors, you know, they've, they tried things out. Some of them worked right. And, and there's. I chew on that a bunch and I, I come to the conclusion that, that the thing has moral authority, that, mm. that ultimately like the process that created me is kind of the, um, maybe there's aspects of the first answer in this, right? <laughs> maybe I'm not, I'm not fully complete in this process, but it's like, I basically, you know, I, I find myself having to accept that there's, there's some sense of moral authority that, behind that process of experimentation and evolution, that there's a revelation happening there. There's something being revealed, which is what life works, what actually works, how does it, and, and like, what are the commitments that produce life? And that's, uh, you know, I find that subjectively inspiring, but also kind of philosophically convincing. And so it's like, mm -hmm. and, and then with a theological lens, you'd look at that and you'd say, um, well, God creates you, right? God, God gives you a particular nature and says, this is your job to, to carry this out, right? go explore. Um, and, and, you know, either way, what you have is this kind of, you're trying to understand this higher process that you're, you're both checking yourself against it and also using it as a source of not quite moral authority, but like acceptance of, of the, of the, the thing that you're well. doing. Uh, the it will. makes it real and it it makes it 
it means that you can self-reflectively consider it to be good in a sense that's mm. larger than, than just its own self-evaluation. And or you're you're checking it against something, right? And there's an error checking process there. You can actually improve it by noticing actually this little instinct here doesn't fit into the overall gestalt of what this thing seems to be getting at. Right. And and that's where you start to that's where you move beyond the hedonism. And you say, mm. no, it's not just that every instinct is good. It's that there is a higher gestalt that I'm that that is being got at here with the way I've been created. And I'm trying to understand that and, and play it out. But it's still this like, you know, you are tasked with a particular leap of faith and there is no way out of that. There's no there's no rationally finding some other ground to stand on. There's no there's no uh, reasoning your way out of it. it. There's only what you've been given and what you can do in terms of error correction with that and understanding where it came from and like just that that full process of, of self-critique and self-refinement. Um, anyways, those are the three answers to the question of like the vertigo of the will and, and hmm. why I don't reach for... Uh, I don't know, hedonistic or, or so-called principled answers. It, it sounds very Nietzschean, actually. It's like this yep. idea that life itself has a mission that is being uh, fulfilled through you, if only you would let it. Exactly. Um, and so, so two, two more questions. Uh, but first, a, a reflection, just to kind of give another angle to this. Um, I, I did something kind of fun this year where I personified that relationship with that will, that life force, that, mm-hmm. that thing that seems to, that ha- was just given to me, you know, the throneness of, of my personality, whatever it is, using yeah. the Jungian idea of the anima. And I just assumed that the anima was actually a real thing, mm-hmm. just acted as if, and then um, communicated ritualistically through that part of me, that part of my psyche, that maybe it's, it's more than just my psyche, whatever it is, but it's some sort of feminine aspect that is generative and full of creativity and gives you signals and messages for, for this will that needs, needs to be Mm. actualized through you. And just practically speaking, it was very effective because it adds, Mm -hmm. it turns on all of my creativity in this process. So if we think of the three answers you gave, Mm -hmm. um, I think this could be like a way to, to boost answer number three, because instead of just interrogating it intellectually, there's more like a right brain move of, of just paying attention to the images in your mind, paying attention to your dreams, paying attention to your aesthetic intuitions about beauty and seeing what will is, is in all of that for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought I'd share that. And then one question for you is for anyone who's listening, if they're like, oh man, this sounds awesome. I would love to have, to live with more conviction and to find out what that is for myself. Other than, you know, talking to your anima or quitting your job so that you're no longer committed to the pre-rational commitments of capital. What might you suggest to them? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, what should people actually do? I mean, I gave a lot of advice in quit your job. That article I wrote, um, Basically, you know, you have to, you have to find a space of freedom of action and, and in the space of freedom of action, that's, 
that's where you get into the dialogue with like who you are fundamentally and what 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 that will is and it's not even about who you are it's 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 or about like it's opening yourself up to the possibilities of what what you can do and because at the end of the day like it's not just it's not just from the inside and it's not and it's not uh it can't be examined entirely from the within mm. within because none of this stuff has any meaning except in reference to external circumstances and things you're doing uh it's you know it doesn't make sense to say what is my will if you're not actually out there doing and having space of free action in which yeah, you can't just a journaling do. exercise right it's it's not in, it's not pure introspection it's it has to be a dialogue of action and and like noticing that by refining the actions you can get to bigger and more interesting actions and that's also a dialogue between what you want and what the universe wants you to do right that mm -hmm. what, what what sort of what opportunities god has provided you or something right it's like what things have been thrown onto your path that it's like it's not just coming from you it's it's the world has provided opportunity that that you can go and pursue and that but the way you find those again is like you have to go out on the you have to go out on the frontier in in some sense you have to uh get out of too much constraint and then get into something that is actually after after sort of a, a time of of open-ended exploration letting things come to you letting things bubble up getting into something that actually is uh your sort of accept self-accepted self-construction in a way it's like this is the kind of person i'm going to be right this is the path i'm going to choose after having like allowed for a space of possibilities mm -hmm. um and, but once you do that, you do actually want to be able to commit to things and not just be like constantly, you know, <laughs> you don't want to like half build an empire and then quit your job again. Right. It's like, cause, cause that's, then all you're doing is, okay, you're, you're being, you're being feckless in some sense or you're, you're, you're being flaky. It, mm -hmm. It's, it's not the, the sort of highest thing you could achieve. It's, it's specifically like get out of the thing when you haven't had a chance to have any formation and any like get into that space of freedom. You need to get into that mode where you are, where you do have a space of freedom and then you need to be committing to things and you need to be committing to things that are going to be actually what, what define you. And, um, which isn't to say you should stay stuck in it forever. Maybe you want to do it in a finite way or whatever, but you, you and, and continue to like have a process of, of exploratory freedom in that a lot of this, I'm just repeating myself from, from my article, but, mm -hmm. but, um, I think, I think that's a lot of it. It's, it's like, if people want to, want to really, I don't know, do the right thing, especially if you have that, that kind of like space for leisure, 
or something where you're you're able to get into that seek freedom uh, i think that's that's the the correct action you want because um, that's where you get to truly develop as a life form mm-hmm. um and i'll then, add one thing yeah go for it um the the a previous guest mentioned Lehman Pascal, he mentioned something like, um, initially it's like your psyche will give you these little whims and Mm -hmm. this kind of maps onto Ian McGilchrist's master and the emissary. So like the right brain being the master and then the left brain being the emissary, but we identify with this kind of the conscious self that wakes up in the morning. But Mm -hmm. what if the job of the conscious self is actually just to listen and then to take Mm -hmm. some of these whims and then act on them in the world. And initially they start off as just random things that you could do or not do. And you, you say this in your article as well. It's like just seeking novelty, things that are just interesting. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I notice that over time, as you do that, the bandwidth between you and your subsystems opens up and mm-hmm. you start to, you start to see like a pattern or you start to see like deeper convictions. And I think, yeah, um, it's a skill. That's, it's a skill. Yeah. So, uh, final question. Mm-hmm. What are you optimistic about? And, in, you know, in the next 20 to 50 years, whatever time scale you feel like has like a really nice vision, um, mm-hmm. where you have a nice vision in mind, I'd, I'd love for you to paint us a picture. I'm optimistic about what we're doing with Palladium. Um, mm-hmm. I, maybe that's, it's too close to home, but, um, I think we're, you know, maybe this is a, a false optimism or something, but I think we're in a very ripe time in history where there's increasing recognition of a crisis and mm. therefore like this chaotic open-ended situation where we're not locked in to the structures that we're, that we're given anymore because they're going to break. And, and then there's this open-ended moment and, and it's sort of like, there's this very exciting task of going and engaging with that, that kind of philosophical vertigo of having to reason, having to come up with a new thing without reasoning your way out of the current thing. Like it's, it's, but it's an exciting problem, right? It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. really interesting. It's, it's like, uh, it, 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 uh. You know, maybe this is just my own my own kind of uh, evaluation, right? But it's it's I find that very exciting that that there's there's this space of possibilities that we can go explore. Excuse me, and and we can we can um, create new things socially, philosophically, institutionally, and I'm very excited about people realizing more and more, you know, starting with, starting with just people around me, but, but, uh, people realizing more and more that, that the thing to do is, you know, we don't need to engage as much with the spectacle. We don't need to engage in much, as much with like movements or indirection or politics or whatever, just build it directly. There right. is a future out there, right? We can just build directly the institutions of better food, of better thinking, of better living, of, of, you know, more wealth. We can, it, it's, you have to be creative in it. It's not operating within the kind of current structures of like, oh yeah, I'm going to get some VC funding and then operate totally like 
with an existing kind of uh, legal conventions and, and so on. It's like you have to be entrepreneurial it, and entrepreneurial in, uh, about structure because that's, that's actually where, where the thing needs to be innovated. It's, it's uh, entrepreneurial about, about statecraft. You know, we've, we've called it entrepreneurial statecraft in, in some of our discussions in Palladium, but um, it goes beyond statecraft, right? It's like you have to see the whole picture. You have to see the actual state of chaos there that, that both already exists and is coming. And then do the entrepreneurial thing of, of find those pieces of the future that need to be built and and just go build institutions and hustle them into existence, even if it's, you know, motivated on a logic that it's not going to provide financial return. It's not going to like express your individuality. It's not going to give you prestige. It's going to give mm-hmm. you something else. It, it's going to give you eternal glory or it's going to give you it's it's going to give you satisfaction of of some urge that you have. Right. It's like it, pursue those things. That's what I want people to do. And I'm excited because we're in a moment where I think that's ripe and you know maybe this is is this too imprecise right like i i want to see i want to see the american west terraformed with with bison running everywhere i want to see good food i want to see americans eating good food more more healthy meat right uh i want to see the food system fixed i want to see i want to see regional cultures develop become more self-confident i want to see the federal government become more confident and uh coordinated and less caught up in all the crap more focused on on its fundamental role of like kind of being this mysterious faraway security apparatus that that holds holds a grip over its half of the world right it, it there's i i can't i can't kind of give give the gifts uh, I don't know how much detail I can I can really articulate here. It, but it's it's. Uh, I see a space of possibilities. I see so many exciting things that can be done, but they come from people realizing that that like now is the time for building these fundamentally new ways of doing things that are motivated by things that are not the you know economic or prestige. Or self-expression, they're motivated by other things, and mm-hmm. and and they're operating outside of the kind of failing current structures. But I'm very optimistic that that um, all of that is possible, and I think I think a lot of it's going to be uh, very interesting. And if we do it, then we get good outcomes. And if we if we don't do it, then you know uh, we simply get a crisis, and and the crisis will suck. But I don't know. That's what I'm excited about. And and that's what Palladium's really we're trying to occupy that space, right? Get in there and think about the possibilities. Think about the things that what can people be motivated by? What can people do that is not the the system as it exists, but is that crucible of possibility that out of which the new revelation will come. That's what we're we're aiming at. And I'm very excited about it well thank you for this conversation yeah man thanks for having me on for those listening 
if you're inspired by what Wolf just said. And I think you should definitely read Palladium. You can read the articles online. And then if you want to support the project, you get these beautiful gifts every quarter. Yep. Quarterly print um, magazine. Beautiful. The subscribers get it. They on, Only the subscribers get it. It's not for sale. Uh, uh, by, by subscribers, I mean, of course, our, our supporters and donors and, and people who are making this whole project happen. We're, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're very excited to offer it to people. We hope they come join us in that.